Okay, so life is difficult. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Life is difficult. So is catching a porcupine. There was an old woodsman that gave this advice on how to catch a porcupine. First of all, do you have any ideas on how to catch a porcupine? You shoot him. Emery, what do you think? Don't. Wisdom. Words of wisdom. All right. Okay. So this old woodsman, he had this advice. He says, it's easy. Just watch out for the slapping tail as you dash in and drop a, lo- a large wash bucket over, his, over him, the whole porcupine, and sit on him. And think about where you went wrong in life. Think about why you are trying to catch a porcupine and slowly walk away. (laughs) Life is difficult, but you can't walk away from all your problems, can you? Sometimes life is unfair, and it just is. Sometimes life is ugly. Sometimes life... Sometimes your life is falling apart, it feels like. Sometimes you feel underappreciated through your whole life. Sometimes you have sorrow upon sorrow. You, you just finish being sad about one thing, and then the next thing that makes you sad just rocks your world. Sometimes you have sickness. Sometimes your own mistakes haunt you. Sometimes... You're under attack, you feel like, or literally. Sometimes there's just so many misunderstandings, it makes life difficult. And sometimes porcupines slap you in the face on the regular. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we could spend all of our time and effort trying to fix all the difficulties or trying to avoid all the difficulties or trying to guard ourselves and our loved ones from all the difficulties. But is that your only option? Just do your best through all the difficulties. Um, Well, today, we are going to see that God doesn't leave us alone in this crazy, messed up life. He just is not going to do it. He's not going to leave you alone. He comes to us and he has provided something new, something alive, and something reliable for us, and that thing is a hero. I love hero movies. Hero origin stories are good also. And and this hero changes everything old into something new. He This thing that God gives us, that the hero gives us, is called the gospel. You might have heard that word. Hopefully you hear it every single Sunday. What it means is it's the finished work of Jesus on the cross, what Jesus did for us. It's also called the good news or the grace of God. All these things mean the same thing. Solomon, he saw life. He lived a couple thousand years before the hero was born, uh, before the gospel happened. And, And we I live a couple thousand years after the hero came, Jesus. 
And so we are blessed to see more than what Solomon could see. We've been made aware of the divine rescue of of God's solution to all the problems that Solomon was aware of. Uh, The master plan, you could say, has been accomplished. So let's dive in, and we're going to see today four reasons why life is difficult. Solomon is really good at shining a light on cockroaches. You guys ever done that? Turn on the light and cockroaches were in your kitchen or something gross like that? Ew, ew, right? Oh, did I tell you the story of when I was on a mission trip in, in uh, Dominican Republic? And I was, had to sleep on the floor. Well, and it was so hot, I couldn't wear a shirt, you know, and I just had a light sheet over me. And, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a cockroach crawling across my tummy. Oh, still gives me the heebie-jeebies. Oh, that is the definition of heebie-jeebies, a cockroach crawling across. And Norm was next to me, and I screamed, woke him up. And so we turned on the lights, and all the cockroaches and spiders just scattered. Oh, it was horrific. <laughs> there was a spider, though. He was, he was huge, like the size of a dinner plate, right? And, but he would just stay in the corner. He was like in the corner up there, and he didn't move while you watched him. But I don't know what he did when I fell asleep. Yeah, who's ready to go on a mission trip? Yeah, I'm sure Tim and Michaela have all kinds of creepy stories. They, they shared last week from Bangladesh. and uh, Yeah, crap. Okay, so moving on. Uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9, Ecclesiastes. This first uh, section, these first three verses, they're going to explain that it seems like um, good people and bad people fare just about the same in general. That's what, that's what these three verses are going to say, basically. So, let's read them. For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything we see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not make sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. So the first thing that Solomon recognizes about life and why life is so difficult is that it seems like good people and bad people fare just about the same in general. So, and again, Solomon's perspective is just what happens in this world. So why is this difficult or hard? Well, let me tell you, God should see the difference in good people and bad people, in the righteous and the wicked. Right? Doesn't that make sense? That he should kind of know the difference between good people and bad people? But we're making an assumption. We're making actually a couple assumptions. The first assumption we're making is that there are good people. We're going to find out that's a false assumption. There are better people 
than the worst people. You know, are you better than Hitler? Yeah, relatively, yes. But are there any truly good people? And the answer to that question is, well, there was one, Jesus. Uh, The second assumption is that if there was good people and bad people, that good people would get God's blessings, that they would deserve God to help them out all the time. So that's why this is difficult for us, is because God should see the difference. But we're going we're gonna to now back up from Ecclesiastes, and we're going to bring in Jesus and the gospel, what Jesus did, and we're going to see how that changes what we can see. First of all, what we see with the gospel is that the gospel helps us to understand that we are all sinners. Um, Adam, you guys remember who Adam was, right? First guy ever made, right? Um, Adam was the best human that could have ever lived, okay? He was our hero as human, as human beings go. He was the best, Listen to this. He had no dysfunctional family that he came from. He couldn't blame his stupid parents. He couldn't blame global warming. He couldn't blame anyone for anything that he did. He had it perfectly. Walking around naked with his wife all day in a land that he could not get hurt in with animals that were all super cute and super awesome. It was a dream world. He was our hero. He did better than you would have done. I can guarantee you that. You're like, oh, Adam, he's just, he got us into this huge problem, this Adam, and we give him a hard time, right? And true, he did fail. He did fall into sin, but he did better, and he lasted longer than any of us could have ever lasted. He was our hero. It was like if all men were gathered together, he would have been the best and the brightest and the most righteous, probably. So, but he failed. And what that means is that all of us, we descended from him, which means we all have inherited his failure, his mistakes, his sinfulness, and that nature where he rebelled against God. We've all inherited that. Now, what does that mean? It means that we needed a new hero, a new hero. And Jesus became, the Bible calls him the second Adam or the new uh, hero who would change our nature again from what Adam gave us, which is always wanting to sin. Jesus says, I'll change you to desiring righteousness, being a, uh, having a uh, good desires, and he will change us from the inside. So the verse that we're going to look at from the New Testament that shows us what we're talking about is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. So who gets this righteousness? those who believe, okay? Not those who are good people or those who try super hard or those who go to the right church, but those who believe. Believe what? Believe 
have the faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they believe. To all, uh, to, or excuse me, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That verse is so important. It's so, we should all have it memorized. If you can't memorize it, tattoo it right here on your arm so you can remember. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means every single one of us is just as much of a dirty, rotten sinner as the worst human that's ever lived. We cannot be better than another sinner. It's like two thieves are standing before a judge, and one thief stole a a loaf of bread, and the other thief stole a million dollars. And they both stand before the judge, and they're both found guilty but the one thief complains, and he says, I, I, I didn't steal as much as the other thief. And the judge says, but you're still a thief. And the punishment was for thievery, not how much you stole. And that's how we are all equal. We have all become lawbreakers because we inherited that from Adam. And this is, this is so vital to understand to understand what Jesus had to do for us. If you don't get that you needed a savior or that you needed that you have sinned, then you're not going to understand why you need a savior. What do I I mean, I don't need I've never done anything wrong, so what do I need a savior for? And that's the attitude that's actually very very prevalent in the world that we live in because the world has worked very hard at convincing people there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as violating God's law. But God says differently. The Bible speaks its truth, and its truth is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in the same bucket. We are all guilty as sinners. Being, But he says this, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in Romans here, we learn that God has a solution for our sin problem, and the solution is what Jesus did for us. And if we put our faith in that, then he says you are freely forgiven of everything you've ever done or would do to offend God. In fact, God does not even see your sin anymore. He has redeemed you, which means when he looks at you, he does not see anything bad that you have ever done. He sees the blood of Jesus all over you, which means you are perfect in his sight. You are his beloved child, and he does not, that is your true and real identity now once you believe in Jesus. But it all starts with understanding that we have sinned. We have sinned. So the gospel helps us to more fully understand what comes to people. You actually do have a say in what comes into your life. God says, you can have my grace. You can't control what events happen to you. You could all get hit by a truck on the way home. It's true. You can't control what anyone else does or doesn't do. You might get betrayed. Your family might abandon you. 
but you can receive and you are promised a guaranteed gift. There is a gift that has your name on it that you can know that you can receive. And that's the gift of his grace. Well, he's actually promised this grace to a certain kind of people. Anyone know who he's promised his grace to? Huh? The strong? Absolutely not. Thank you for giving a wrong answer so we can all look at you and laugh. Ha ha. No, it says right there on the humility poster, it says God gives, or God resists the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble, right? Say it loud and proud. No, not proud. That's the opposite of the point I'm trying to make. (laughs) Humility. He has promised to give all of his grace, this wonderful free gift to the humble, which is something you can choose. You have a little bit of control in your life. You can't control where you're born, who you are, what happens to you, or anything bad or good, basically, Solomon says, but you have control over this one thing. Are you going to choose humility or pride? Humility, to be humble, is simply this. Do you say, God, I need you? God, I need you. Or do you say, God, I got this. Or God, I don't need you right now. Let me handle this. Let me do my thing. Let me do what I want to do. That is the path of pride. It is the heart attitude of pride saying, I don't need you, God. I got this. But God's Undeserved grace is given to those who are humble. And I want to give you guys a couple examples before we go on in Ecclesiastes. There's one example, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, funnest name to say in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar. He, in Daniel chapter 4, he writes this wonderful chapter, and he, he actually wrote a chapter in the Bible. Did you guys know that? Daniel chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. And he starts this chapter by saying, I love God. I glorify God, but let me tell you my story. And he tells this story, a long drawn out story, and I'm going to give it to you guys for homework. This is your homework this week is to read Daniel chapter four and look at this because Nebuchadnezzar describes how he was so proud proud, and, and he was such a big deal that he, he built a statue and, and he just is walking around the top of his city that he's built and he's looking down on all the ants as people and he's just saying, look at this awesome city that I have built. And then God says, you're an idiot. And God curses him, takes away his understanding, makes him crazy. So he stops cutting his hair and he starts acting like a cow and he goes into the field and he eats grass and he just rolls around in the grass like a cow for a few years until he was humbled and until he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, God, I need you. And God said, okay, here's some grace. And God gave him back his mind gave him back his kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar was a changed man because of humility. God is able to humble someone as proud as Nebuchadnezzar. So let me ask you this. Are you as proud as Nebuchadnezzar? Probably not. None of us are ruling the entire world. Okay? But if God was able to 
humble Nebuchadnezzar, do you think God can humble us? Yeah, he will. And maybe some of the circumstances happening to you are part of God's humbling in your life where you're learning to go from, God, I don't need you, to, oh, God, I I do need you. I'm sorry about that. And as soon as we have that switch in us, God says he starts to pour out his grace. It, it is an, it's a law of God. I cannot help people who are humble. He says, I resist them. I literally take my hand and I push them away from me. And I said, I, I can't help you. But the moment that you say, okay, God, I need you. He rushes in. Why? Because he's not some vengeful God. He is a loving father. And he wants to help us so much. But the one rule that he cannot violate is that he will give grace to the humble and he can't give it to anyone who's proud. So that's one uh, story that teaches us that lesson. The second story is from Second Chronicles chapter 33. And I'm just going to read you this one because this one's really amazing. Um, so this is about a king named Manasseh. So Second Chronicles chapter 33. I'm going to read this section to you, the first 20 verses, because uh, you'll see the story, okay? Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Anyone in here 12 years old? You're 12? And you're 12? Two 12-year-olds? Okay, so you guys just became king, and you turn into boys magically. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals. Those are demons that they worshipped. He made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven, all these demons, and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, "...in Jerusalem shall be my name forever." And he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He also caused the, uh, his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, uh, which means he took his own kids and there was a, there was a idol made of gold or bronze, I think, whatever, a metal. And it, it was looked like this. It was an idol that looked like this. And they had a fire underneath the hands and they would heat up the hands And so if you really loved this demon, what you could do is take your child and throw it in there and let them burn in the hands and die and offer them as a living sacrifice to the demon because demons love death. They they don't want to bless you. They want to harm you and your family. But Manasseh was all in, okay, killing his own kids, murdering them. It says, and he practiced soothsaying and used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. All these are different ways where he could, he was just obsessed with speaking to evil spirits, okay? Is this real? Yes, you can speak with, you can engage with evil spirits. That's a, that's a thing that's out there, okay? So that's, he was all into that. Um, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He he even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. 
And I will not again remove the, uh, the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed to, for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations which the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Okay, so this king is a bad dude. Okay, he is horrible. What would you do to him if you were God? Hmm. You'd pinch him like a bug? Is that what that was? What? Yes, okay. Okay. I would probably be angry. I would probably be vengeful if I was God, but the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. That's what God did. God spoke with them. He still loved Manasseh and his people. If God could love Manasseh, does he love me when I'm being an idiot? Does he love you? Absolutely. He spoke to them, but they would not listen. Therefore, the Lord brought upon him the captains of the, of the army of the king of Assyria, and they took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him to Babylon. Okay, so God, is God angry? Is he doing this to, for revenge against Manasseh for betraying him or not following all his rules? No, God still loves Manasseh, but he is forced to bring a discipline into his child's life. And you're like, how can you even call this guy a child? How can he even take like ownership? How can he say, this is one of my guys? Well, God's love is truly mysterious. He's weird in that. He looks at us and he says, I actually love you, even when you don't listen to me. And he brought this discipline into his lives. And it's horrible. They would the, the people of Assyria were really awful, and they, they put fish hooks in their cheeks, and that's what they drug them off through the desert to captivity. And that's what they did to Manasseh. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And God ignored him because God is vengeful. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Manasseh actually humbles himself. To me, this is too little, too late. You're going to burn in hell, right? That's what we think. You should get what you deserve. But God is so rich in mercy that when he loves someone, which he loves all of us, he is willing to accept one thing always, and that's humility. He will always respond the exact same way when someone humbles themselves, no matter how wicked they have been. Not because they deserve grace, but because they don't deserve grace. That is why God is good. God will always respond to every single one of us if we choose to humble ourselves before him. Again, humility is to say, God, I need you. So there it is. Oh, I didn't finish my text. Sorry. Let me just finish the story here. Um, he received, he prayed to him and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the, that the Lord was God. 
Uh, we'll go ahead and stop that there. So there is our examples of humility. So life is difficult, our first little three verses say, because it seems like there's no difference between good people and bad people or that God's not noticing it. But God says there is a real difference between those who are humble and those who are proud. And the difference means that his grace will be poured out on undeserving people, probably because there are no deserving people. There are no good people when, it, when we compare ourselves with his standard. Okay, all right, the second way that life is hard is this, verses four through six, death puts an end to all we do in this life. And then seven through 10, so maybe we should just enjoy our lives and this because this is all we get. All right, so let me read these verses to you. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. In other words, if you're still alive, there's hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the, mem the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. So those verses mean death puts an end to all that we will do in this life. The next verse, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife uh, you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life. And in the labor which you perform under the sun, whenever, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Gosh, Solomon is a downer. He is like, you're going to die, and the best you can possibly hope for is that you're married. That's his opinion. I think it's great, too. But he says that is the best you can get in this life. Okay, so, again, the, the, why this is hard is because death puts an end to all we do, so maybe we should just enjoy life with all that we have. Why this is hard? Well, our life should last for eternity. That's why this is hard. Because you were created and you were made and you're supposed to live forever. That's why this is hard. So it should matter. There's a, there should be a reason and a purpose for your life. Or else, what's the point of living? What is the purpose of life? And it should be more than just have fun and try to be happy, which is what Solomon says, if you don't have God in your world, that's all you got. Just Try to get married. That's his whole point. These joys that he mentions are temporary. They're like a shadow. So what does that mean? What, do, what is, okay, so we're going to back up from Solomon's perspective. We're going to bring the gospel in. And what does that mean? Well, the gospel says that there is actually eternity in the balance, that there, you can have an eternal life. John 3.16. You guys ever heard of that verse? It's real obscure but I saw it at a football game one time, and I thought I would share it with you guys because it's super impressive. Anyone want to read that super loud? 
Someone read it. Is it up on the screens? All right, someone read it real loud. Everlasting life. That's what God wants for us, and that's what the gospel brings to us, everlasting or eternal life. And God says, it's a gift. I'll give it to you. Solomon wishes he could have that gift because he sees that without that gift, life is pointless. Life is like really short. It's like a shadow. It just doesn't matter. So God says, all right, I got a gift for you, and it's called eternal life. Give is always the language of grace. And so he says eternal life is a gift. Now, John 17, 3 says this. Uh, Jesus is talking, and, and he says, you know what eternal life is, guys? I'm going to tell you what eternal life is. Just in case you were wondering, John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what Solomon thought life was about was living here on earth and the relationships you have with people. That's, he said, that's basically, and your job. That's all you can do. But what the gospel changes about that is Jesus says, I'm going to give you a free gift of eternal life. And that free gift is that you can actually know God and me. And knowing us, that relationship is eternal life. That is the definition of eternal life and heaven. Where I thought heaven was going to be about roller coasters and wings and harps and Peter at the pearly gates. Well, no. What it's really about is a relationship of oneness with God. God and Jesus Christ, his son, which is God. So that is what eternal life is. Relationship with God makes life completely different. It makes it eternal and valuable. In Revelation 3, God mentions that he'll give those who have a relationship with Jesus white robes. That's interesting because Solomon's like, yeah, you should probably have white robes. God is like, I'll give you white robes. Because no matter how hard you try, you're not going to get white robes. But God would give them for free. So eternal life. I have to sneeze. It's still there. One sec. All right. I think it's passing. Okay. I'm all right. I survived. All right. The third reason, and we're going to go quicker through these last two. The third reason why life is difficult is that things just seem random and chaotic. And I want you to think in your mind, of Dr. Ian Malcolm. Do you know who that is? Anyone not know who that is? Guy from Jurassic Park, Chaos Theory. Okay. Things are just random and chaotic. That makes life hard. Well, look what he says in verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For a man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of man are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. So this saying that things are just random and chaotic, and Solomon hates that, and I do too. It makes it hard because 
it means Ian Malcolm was right, that chaos is all that is in control. And so the, the real underlying problem with this, guys, is the question, is God even in control? Is God even in control of anything? And that question deserves an answer. The gospel would say, yep, he actually is in control. Uh, he never wastes anything. So we're going to be reading Romans 5.8, which is going to help us to understand this. Um, but you see, our life and the difficult things that happen, it's never so simple as it looks. Yet behind of all the complexity of why this would happen or why that other person would win the race or win the prize, and I don't because I'm a better person than them, and all this stuff, is that behind all of that, we can be assured of one thing, and that is his love. His love shows his control. Even if it looks hopeless, and even if all the things that are happening to us are difficult, his love is the one thing that we can stand on and know. Yep, I got cancer, but God loves me. Well, but how, do you, how can you know? Because you got cancer. Oh, well, I know. It's the rock on, I, on, what I, on which I stand. It's, it's everything to me. Um, even if it looks hopeless. Jesus, when he died, he went to the grave still trusting in God's love. And he talked about it. And God didn't disappoint. Romans 835 uh, says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or peril, or sword. All of those sound like bad things that can happen to my life. But Paul says none of it can rock that foundation. Once you know and believe and have God's love in your heart, once you know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, like, um, like Romans 8.28 says, once you know God loves you, all the difficult things aren't going to shake you as much. So that's how the gospel makes a difference in the chaotic nature of this world. And the last thing that we're going to look at is that life is unfair. So the fourth reason life is difficult is because it's unfair. Look at this story that Solomon tells in verse 13. The wisdom, uh, this wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, Man, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys so much good. So to summarize, that would be life is unfair. Life is unfair. This one guy, he describes this city with one guy who saved them against an entire army. And, and he's like, there should be books written about this guy. He was amazing. He, he was awesome. And, and, and no one's even going to know. 
He's just going to die in obscurity. That's not fair, Solomon says. Wisdom should be what men are known for and remembered for, but often they're just not. Even if someone is truly great, they're not they're just superseded by someone who's just stronger and beat them up. Nerds never win. That's what he's saying. So why is this hard? Why is this hard? Because it seems like a waste to be good and wise. Why does it really matter if I'm good or wise? Well, the gospel. Let's back up and let's add Jesus into this equation like we have with all the other things. Jesus was good and wise, wasn't he? And he got murdered. He was good and wise and perfect and loving and kind and all that a man should be. And he got murdered. He got betrayed. But God's purpose in that was to spread his goodness and wisdom throughout the world so that all people could be freed from this pointless life existence that Solomon hates. In this chapter, Solomon says, I hate life. I hate cockroaches. But you've got to know that they're there. And there's a solution to the cockroaches. There's a solution to this pointless life. God says that as his children, he desires to spread his kingdom of love and peace and goodness and wisdom throughout the world using us. That's what it means to spread the gospel. He wants to take us, um, he wants to give us the very spirit of Jesus and spread that spirit out throughout the world, his love and his wisdom showing everyone that their lives can be redeemed, that they are loved, and that their lives truly matter. And that they will matter for eternity. All the things we just studied about how life is difficult are still going to happen. But through Jesus, it can all be redeemed. Through relationship with him and with God, it can all be changed made new. So we're going to end with this verse in 1 Peter in the New Testament, just to kind of sum it all up and put a big bow on it and, and look really pretty for us to remember as we walk out, okay? So 1 Peter 5, verse 10 and 11 says this, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect Establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Suffering is a part of life. Peter says, after you have suffered. There's nothing in the Bible that says you get a free pass on suffering. No, you're going to suffer. And that's part of life that all the descendants of Adam have to go through that. That's what... We have, that's what this life is about. Life is difficult. Life is hard. There's a porcupine, and he's chasing you, slapping you with his tail. What are we going to do? We're going to just throw a bucket over it and walk away? What are we going to think? Are we going to learn from the gospel that says God is present 
God is with us. And God has an infinite amount of grace for us in this life that he's willing to give us freely. He's the God of all grace, this verse says. He has called us to his eternal glory, which means your life is supposed to matter for eternity. He's called you to do that. He's saying, stop thinking about your life as being this, these years. Your life is so much bigger. These years are just a vapor, just a shadow, just a puff of air, just a puff of smoke, and then they're gone. But your life is so much more that the only way to find What it all is, is through me, Jesus would say. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has called us to his eternal glory through by Jesus. That means your life matters, and all the suffering and the pain matters, guys. Everything that you're going to go through, it matters. And it says here, God will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Four things. We had four of life's problems. Here's four solutions to throw right in the face of that porcupine That's his grace. He's always got a solution for every problem. And they're all free gifts given to who? Those people who are humble. Humility is who gets these. So those four things, he will perfect you. Life is hard, but it's got a perfecting effect on the children of God, which means he will transform you into the perfect image God has planned you to be. And he's using these difficult times to do that. He's going to change you through these difficult times. The second thing is he's going to establish you, which means when the events of this life shake us, his grace keeps us grounded. He will establish you. Third, he will strengthen you. When the events of this life are too difficult for you, his grace will, is the only strength that you can trust in. And life sometimes is too difficult. Have you guys ever heard people say, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And that is not true. He gives you more than you can handle all the time. That's just a lie. It actually is trying to get people to depend on themselves and to believe that they can handle whatever comes to them, which is the same way, same thing as saying, God, I don't need you. Which is pride, which is going to keep you out of God's grace. Gosh, psychology. Or the loss. When in fact, if we just realize that God does give us things that are outside of our control and that are too big and too strong for us, then we would say, God, I need you, which puts us right under the fountain of his grace, which is him helping us. God, I need you. And then the last thing he says is that it will settle you. His grace will settle you. That means when it's all out of control, When your life feels out of control, when it feels like you don't know what's going on, his grace brings you supernatural peace. Thank God I need you. I cannot control this. I need you to settle me. I need to put my hope and trust in you. And he says the the result of that is that he will give you his supernatural peace. So we saw four ways that life is difficult, and we saw four ways that God's grace and God's gospel answers those difficulties. And all of it could be summed up in God wants to give you grace, even though life is hard. All right? So would you guys all stand up with me? We're going to sing a couple more songs and just respond to what God has spoken to us today. So...
God would agree. Your life is hard. Your life is difficult. But Jesus will make it sweet. Jesus wants to be with you. Jesus wants to uh, comfort you in the life that you have. He wants to give you his grace. So as we sing these songs, uh, let's just remember that God wants to get into our lives. All the things that have happened to your life may be random, may be unfair, but God, he wants to be right there with you. He understands it, and he's provided a solution, and his name is Jesus. So in this time, you know, Father, we just, we just come right to you. I've probably spoken too much today, and my opinions are, are not perfect, but God, your word is. And what we can know is that you love us, and that foundation is going to help us through every difficulty that we're going to go through. You are an ever-present help in time of need, your scripture says. That you, we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us, Peter tells us. So, Lord, that's what we want to do right now. We want to we acknowledge that our life has been unfair and difficult, but you are there. We're going to seek you in the difficulty. We're going to lift our eyes to you through the tears. We're going to be strengthened by you when we are weak because that's what you do. And then you are the hero that receives all the glory and credit for all that you do to help us out. And we just want to praise you even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.